Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, the coalition government is dismissing widespread anti-government protests as inconsequential. But others say Māori anger at planned changes isn't going to fade anytime soon. Of course, thousands turned out yesterday for protests which were promoted by the party Māori to oppose the coalition's policies on a raft of Māori issues. At Parliament, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said the public should wait and judge his government on its results. So I think it's pretty unfair, you know, to be honest. I think the reality is we're in government for a week. Uh, we, we are going to get going and get things done for Māori and for non-Māori, and that's, that's what our focus is going to be. Mr Luxon says he wants to demonstrate to Māori that outcomes will improve for them under his government. I don't think the last six years have been good for Māori, and I think Māori have done very well, particularly in national-led governments in the past, and they're going to continue to do so. But the way we deal with that and the way we do that is we actually focus on the things that are important to Māori. And when you do that, you get back to housing and health and education and law and order and the economy, and that's what we're going to focus on. ACT Party leader David Seymour says the party Māori lacks serious policy solutions and is in what he calls the drama business. Mr Seymour says the protests were disruptive and didn't give a clear message. If they had a coherent message, that would be great. But they're trying to say that a government who stands for treating all people the same uh, is racist. Uh, They're not just wrong, they are preaching the complete opposite of the words that they use. And New Zealand First's Shane Jones says protesting is legitimate, but the party Māori is not truly representative of Māori across the country. It is preposterous that the Māori Party should think that they are the authentic voice for Māori New Zealanders. I remind everyone again, that party got less than 3% of the vote and a lot of their party voters were not Māori. A lot of them were hippies. And this morning, the Māori King, Kingi Tuhaitia, has called for a national hui on unity to be held on the 20th of January. Well, to discuss all of this, we are joined by our Māori News Editor, Taiha Molyneux. Uh, morena, Taiha. Morena, Ingrid. OK, let's start with this uh, call for a national hui on unity by Kingi Tuhaitia. Uh, the 20th of Jan- January, of course, comes before some uh, big things in the uh, Māori and Māori and Crown calendar uh, ahead of uh, Waitangi Day and the Ratana celebrations. What's the significance of that? I think the significance of that in terms of a range of areas is the turnout yesterday, the visible impact of, of the call that went out yesterday and with the release that's come from Kingi to Haitia, there's there are Rangatira across the board mentioned in in the statement and there is support for this we coming from Tufaretoa. So you've got Tiarikita Tsumutehu, you've got the Ratana Tumuaki, Manuel Tikuhamutana Tamo, the breadth and depth of the support for the call in regards to the Tiriti is very, very I suppose the depth can't really be explained in Te Reo Pākehā from, from what I'm trying to sort yeah. of explain. But the, the kupu Māori, I suppose, would be the knuckle and the ito, or the essence of what the concerns are coming from. It has nothing to do with political parties. It has nothing to do with any individuals. It has to do with the impact of issues. It has to do with the impact of the treaty and the treaty not being honoured in terms of how that has had a flow-on effect in Māori communities across the country. So I think pigeonholing 
pigeonholing the concerns that are being raised as political allegiance is is a very, I suppose, the a kupu Māori again, as it's easier to sort of describe, is there's a level of kuaretanga or lack of knowledge of how this has genuinely, authentically impacted Māori across the country. So, okay, look, with well, the looking, amount of people, looking at that lack of knowledge, how does that uh, compare? I guess with Shane Jones' comments that we've just heard there, that Te Pāti Māori mm. is not truly representative of Māori across the country, and his suggestion there, I guess, that the uh, the protests weren't representative of Māori across the country. You covered that, of course. What what is your understanding of how broad the support is for this movement? I think the the, the again the breadth and depth of the support is. I don't think anyone's claiming to be the representative of all Māori perspectives. And obviously there will be people that have different perspectives, mm. Māori and non-Māori alike. But I think what what was very clear in the atmosphere within within the people that was that were gathered there and something that I noticed as well, is there was a, a very, very large amount of rangatahi there. And the rangatahi that I sort of encountered while I was there were speaking te reo Māori. And that's something that... You know, it's, it's not something that you see, well, that I would have seen back at other protests, is there's a generation that is very aware of the value of Te Tiri Te Waitangi, of the, I suppose, and of how much of an impact that will have on their future and the future of others. So the generational impact is very, very, I think that the depth in, of the generational impact is starting to show, and more and more Māori are coming through with a very, very deep knowledge of and what it means. And um, it's becoming very obvious in terms of how the protest, how these events are being run and how they're being communicated and how they're being shared. Social media, they've got influences involved. So there's a generation that's very aware and very mindful of language and rhetoric and how to communicate with people. So it's 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 a different I suppose yeah. I'm not sure of the words. But they, well, but I think what you're saying, that they're not going to be won over by the Prime Minister's contention that his government is going to deliver on other fronts for Māori mm. in terms of the housing, uh, the jobs, um, those kind of governmental policy aspects. Uh, he's saying, just wait, just give us time. But are you saying it's bigger than that? It, it's much bigger than that. And telling Māori to just wait and give us time is you know, trust the system, just sit there and, and, and don't do anything in the meantime. You know, when you look at the historical aspects, you've got, you know, intergenerational communities that have had to sort of create their own solutions and create their own pathways forward. And this is part and parcel of that when people talk about Māori, you know, these events yesterday sort of being anti-discussion and anti-debate. The old Māori is built on speaking to each other in conversation. So there is no issue with that from what I've sort of encountered and gathered. The issue is the rhetoric that's being used around explaining these, explaining the, the validity of the to the general public. Words being used like separatism, this kind of thing, discriminatory, those kinds of things, and equal rights for all, is unless there's been a personal experience, it's quite hard, it, it, it can be quite damaging to frame up things like the Tiriti, and that's something that Peter Tiping mentioned last night, is how you frame up discussions on the Tiriti impact the way other people or people that aren't very aware of the Tiriti respond to it. 
How do you think this National Day, oh, sorry, this uh, Unity Hui uh, will play out in terms of, of where the discussion goes from here? I probably wouldn't want to guess or, or, or you know, in terms of how it will play out because in terms of the people that have come out in support of this kaupapa, you've got, like I said, across the country that are sort of, that are in support of this and there are a lot of different issues and unique issues that impact variously across the country. So each of them will have specific aspects that they want to focus on. So there's no, it's not just a broad broad spectrum honour the treaty. People are like iwi are actually centering in on specific aspects that are being impacted. So you've got section seven double A. That that today and that sikanga goes back to a report that was created by people like John Rangiho, who I'll doubt the two. The depth, the work, the level of awareness that Māori had put into bringing those kinds of things to life goes so far back and the knowledge is so deep that it these kinds of kōrero actually tend to generate a lot of solutions that are quite easy to implement. The difficulty what the difficulty for a lot of Māori in terms of getting those those solutions implemented is the lack of awareness or I think it's the balancing both worlds mm. in terms of delivering solutions and Māori are accustomed to working in two worlds. That's basically how they've they've had to adjust to that kind of situation, but it's a different. Sure. When it comes to people who aren't accustomed. I understand what you're saying. Hey, kia ora, thank you very much for that. That is is our uh, Māori News Editor Taiha Molyneux. Well, the new government wants to stop any more public servants getting extra pay for being skilled in te reo Māori. More than a dozen ministries and departments pay bonuses of up to $3,500 a year. Depending on how fluent a person is, Public Service Minister Nicola Willis concedes... It can't dump the existing agreements, but wants to put a halt to any future ones. Now, she declined to come on the programme. Our reporter, Phil Pennington, has this story and is with us now. Hi, Phil. Morning, Corinne. Just give us the background of what these are, these allowances. Well, the allowances are paid uh, for proficiency in Māori language that's usually gauged by the Māori Language Commission, Te Fidi. They have a way of setting it. So it's level three, level four, level five. It starts at level one, of course. They actually suggest that at level five, which is full fluency, you should get $7,500 a year. The ones that I've looked at here, we have 14 out of 21 major departments that are offering these. They seem to cap out at three and a half. So they're nowhere near the recommended full amount. And that three and a half has been in place since 2003. Wasn't inflation adjusted until recently. Māori Language Commission also has just recently gone online, such as the demand. And so flying in the face of that increased demand and you know saying pay pay people more, it's actually worth more value than you're giving it, even though two-thirds of the departments we've looked at do offer these and have done for years. Flying in the face of that is Nicola Willis saying she is going to ask for advice on how we could stop these bonuses being negotiated into future collective agreements. So saying they're already in some agreements. And this came around because in July, National MP Simeon Brown, our Cabinet Minister, said uh, in relation to DOC, Department of Conservation, starting a new allowance next year, uh, we are going to remove the allowances. They call them bonuses, OK? Um, so we went to the Public Service Minister and said, what's happened to that? Initially, she said only that... Um, they were going to be looking into the use of Te in the public service. She'd be getting advice on that. And then she said this line about, well, we can't 
get rid of the ones that are existing. So when I pressed on that and said, well, what is it that you're going to remove? This is like the third time around with the question. She then said, we are going to get advice on how we could stop these. Ministries are required to obviously have some a lot of skill in te reo. They've got a lot of things they have to do. It's not just about name whether the name is primary on the on the headline, if you like, or on the website. They have legal obligations under the 2016 Māori Language Act to you know obviously use the language and mm. and enable Māori to be able to communicate with public services. So what are we talking about here when we talk about the allowance? Is it for people? There must be a base level of Tareo language required or used within ministries. This is for people to be, what, fully fluent or tr- to try to be. Well, it's at level, so it starts uh, just with learning a little bit and then moving up. Of course, level three, you should be able to have a bit of a conversation, and that's where a lot of these uh, payments kick in. Um, Doc starting at about $1,800 there, going up to three and a half. You've got these in the environment. You've got them, some suggestion in IRD, they're, they're there, environment, uh, education. So these are the ministry officials. Um, the uh, Te Fiti, the Māori Language Commission, says um, these have been around since the 1980s. These are not a new thing. They say they, these have uh, flourished under every stripe of government till now without a problem. And they're saying they hope that the minister is going to ask them for advice because they'll be saying, look, what you need to do is put more resource into this, not try to stop the spread of them. Um, th- when we went to the Public Service Commission, that was where Ms Willis said she would be going for advice. They said to us, actually, we don't have any advice to give. We don't put out any guidance on either these today are bonuses. That's up to individual chief executives. And they also said we don't have any guidance on the use of today in the public service, which I found surprising. Well, so the minister's going to draw possibly a blank there. So it was the Māori Language Commission who said to me, well, she's going to the wrong place she needs to come to us for advice, but that they have not been approached for any advice on this. Uh, admittedly, she did say, I will seek, so this possibly and probably will be happening in the future. So I'm just trying to get my head around this. So the allowances presumably come out of the baseline funding that each particular ministry gets, right? So it, 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 what is the objection that National has here, here? Is it they're trying to save money in the public service? There's no secret there. They've been elected to do that. Uh, that was part of their... their their core policy initiative. Are they just? Are they trying to say this is a nice to have? We can't afford that to, is, to be paying allowances, or is it this should be done in house? It shouldn't be one officer should be yeah. part of an overall plan. In the statement from the minister, she says her focus is on delivering better quality public services. So that's in the same statement that she's she wants to um, investigate stopping these. And remembering, of course, that in the coalition agreements, they don't mention these bonuses, interestingly, with the New Zealand First. It mentions that agencies should communicate primarily in English and their primary name should be in English. Well, they do already do that, but the subtext of the, the, the thrust of this is is that, yes, these appear to be a nice-to-have within this new government. Um, the minister says she hasn't put out any more policies and directives Sounds like that those will be coming. And we are seeing signs of that. MFAT changed a template last month about submissions to the minister and says it's consulting on the form, the language that the minister wants to be consulted on. I talked to the primary teachers union and the unions are promising a fight over this if they're trying to pull back on these bonuses. And they're saying they're picking up for the Ministry of Education, trying to dilute a cultural allowance to apply to any cultures opposed to Māori and Pacifica, which is what they say was negotiated. Negotiation is the key here. These te allowances are negotiated for in collective agreements. Those cannot be retrospectively changed unilaterally by the government. 
Ms Willis recognises that, but she's definitely on the path of wanting to restrict and curtail it. To Tauri Fee, the Māori Language Commission says, no, that is not good. The two unions we've talked to, PSA says, we will fight that. And as they say, they've already got 14 out of 21 major departments have these. These are not a new thing, even though back in July when this came out at DOC, it was presented in some parts of the media as shock, horror, a Māori atreo allowance. What is going on? Phil Pennington, thank you for the update. Our reporter there. Well, let's go now to education because New Zealand's scores have fallen yet again in the OECD's PISA tests of reading, maths and science. The average scores in last year's tests of 15-year-olds are only slightly lower in reading and science, but in maths. The average score fell by the equivalent of three quarters of a year of learning since the last round of tests back in 2018. Marks fell in many other countries too, and COVID is, is of course, getting the blame. Our education correspondent, John Gerritsen, has been looking at the figures. Hi, John. Good morning, Corin. Okay, overall, over, your overall impression here, this is not a great result. Oh, it's really disappointing, and especially when, when we got these results, a, a little bit ahead of it, the Ministry had said, oh, we didn't actually get quite enough uh, schools and students sitting these tests, so... Whatever we get, whatever the results are, are, probably about ten points higher than they should be. They're not, you know, not a true sample. So you look at this, quite a drop in maths, through slight drops in um, science and reading. I think actually, you know, maybe it's ten points worse again. Um, and you can't, you know, it's very difficult actually to estimate that. But yeah, really disappointing. What's interesting looking at the sort of the graphs is that everybody fell. There was a clear, you know, that the, the, the general trend is down. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the one thing that everyone's had in common over the last couple of years is COVID. And of course, th- this testing happened in New Zealand anyway, in term three last year. But for these uh, 15 year olds sitting the test, they'd have several years of COVID. So it's not just the disruption they're experiencing at that time. It's that sort of cumulative effect. So what I was saying, you know, it was very disappointing. There's a drop. COVID just had such a big impact. Um, you know, and, and right across the world, there were some countries, I think the, the Netherlands, for example, one of their scores dropped by 27 points. Finland had a score, I think it was in reading, dropped 30 points. So some really massive drops around the world. Not all necessarily to do with COVID, but that seems to be the uniting factor. Why The maths issue has been a conundrum for many years in this country. Why It continues to fall away. That must be a real concern. What are people saying? I mean, what's going on? Well, actually, you can look at some of this data. data. They um, actually ask kids how they feel about doing maths, and New Zealand children have quite a high level of maths anxiety. You know, they, they worry about it um, quite a bit. So, um, yeah, and, and certainly when you talk to educators, um, they do feel that maths uh, could be more of a focus, could be taught better right from primary school all the way through. So, but the, and there's this issue of how we teach maths. Has that been resolved? It's, it's, well, it's still being debated. The last government was um, trying to develop its common practice model. Um, there's you know, been a lot of debate about how much drilling you do. Do you do more group work? It, it, it's, still, it's still being discussed. Do, do we get any sense of the socioeconomic factors at play in New Zealand when it comes to education from these tests? Can we read anything into that? Yeah, we've traditionally had quite a high gap, you know, probably around the average but pretty high so uh, someone from a low socioeconomic background in this test is scoring about 103 points from memory um, lower than someone from a high socioeconomic background now that's actually got wider than it was um, back in around I think 2018 um, so that that's a really poor result but if you look at also at these results um, New Zealand teens were more likely than other teens in the um, OECD to say they'd missed a, a meal um, I think 14% said, um, said they'd missed a meal at least once in the in the previous 
uh, month or week. I can't remember the exact detail there. But anyway, it was worse than the average for the OECD, which was 8%. So, you know, there's an indicator there that some kids are doing it hard, and and that's got to be having an impact on on their output. I note that there's a, uh, there and there has been a few principals uh, not keen on this survey. So where, where are we at in terms of does it still stack up as the benchmark globally? And look, I think it still stacks up at the ben- as the benchmark globally. It's really useful to be able to measure New Zealand's performance year to year. But um, I guess uh, what, what happened last year is schools were so busy, they felt their students were so stressed um, from COVID that they didn't participate. The other thing that's going on, and it's well documented, is that students in New Zealand don't take these tests as seriously as students in some other countries. You don't get any NCEA credits for it, for it. You're sitting there for two and a half hours ticking boxes or you know answering questions questions. Some kids enjoy that, many don't, and there's just no motivation to actually try hard. There is a, a suspicion that that has quite a strong effect on New Zealand's results. Do, do you think there are some in the education sector who don't want us to do this anymore, don't oh, want to be part of PISA, because, and don't want to, you know, don't want to measure it? Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what's the point? We have other ways of measuring students' performance. Um, the way this system works doesn't really ma- marry up with how we d- measure NCEA. So there's, there's definitely some principals, some teachers who, who, who don't want us to do it. On the other hand, other, other people do find it useful. Is there any way to incentivize students to want to sit? I don't know. Oh, goodness, I don't know. You, you know, I mean... Ten bucks. It can't be good if students don't want to do it. Fair enough. Yeah. But is there a way of you know, trying to make it a little bit more... Uh, yeah, some some incentive to do it. Look, I suppose, I suppose you could try and give it some sort of credit, but you know it's not part of the NCEA system. So you'd be looking at something like giving kids a voucher or something for sitting it. But yeah, I don't know if that would even be within the rules. Maybe you're not allowed to. Interesting stuff. We'll hear more about this, no doubt. John Gerritsen, thank you very much for that. Our education correspondent. Well, the Israeli Defence Forces told CNN that for every one Hamas fighter they've killed in Gaza, two civilians have also died. According to figures compiled by the Hamas-controlled health ministry in Gaza, almost 16,000 people have died since October 7. The ministry's figures don't distinguish between combatants and civilians. An expanded ground operation is now underway in the southern Gaza city of Han Yunus. Han Yunus is, was at one point the officially designated safe place for uh, Palestinians from northern Gaza to flee to. But now Israeli military vehicles firing bullets and tank shells at cars and people trying to move through the area. A spokesperson for the Israeli government says they are now moving into the second stage of their war in Gaza. Now, a 90-minute-long local tactical pause was enforced overnight near the Rafah border crossing with Egypt to allow further aid into the enclave. But the World Health Organization says the situation in southern Gaza is deteriorating by the hour. For more on the humanitarian conditions in Gaza, earlier I spoke to a spokesperson for the United Nations Relief and uh, Works Agency, or UNRWA, Juliet Toma. We are seeing a repeat of the horrors from before the pause, heavy bombardment, including in the south and especially in the south. And we're seeing movements of people and exodus, in fact, of people, at least 60 
thousand people have come to UNRWA shelters, United Nations shelter where I work, and more people are coming. Our shelters, however, are overcrowded with with people, and we cannot take more people. The bombardment has got to stop. And of course, the south is where people were originally told uh, to go to because it would be safe, weren't they? During the war, no place in uh, Gaza is uh, safe, not even the south. But you're right in saying that a lot, a lot of people, uh, in fact, the vast majority, 70 percent of people have been forced to leave other parts of Gaza and go and seek shelter in the south. But now the south is also being bombed and people are forced to move out. And they're asking, they're calling us in the morning. They called me, one colleague called me and he was sobbing on the phone. And he said, Juliette, I have nowhere to go. I slept on the street last night. And your staff are among those killed? Yes, yes. We have uh, sadly uh, confirmation as of this morning that 130 of our colleagues at UNRWA have been killed in Gaza. This is the highest that the United Nations has recorded in any single conflict since its establishment just after the Second World War. There should be more pressure to put an end to this uh, vicious and brutal war. I mean, among our colleagues who were killed, there were doctors, there were teachers, there were school principals, there were support staff. They, like the rest of the community, they had nothing to do with this, this war. And people, civilians like you and I, are being caught up in a war that is not of their making. It has got to come to an end. It's been two very, very long, deadly, bloody hell, hell of a two months, mm. hell. Uh, the ceasefire obviously ended, but we are hearing about local tactical pauses. Uh, what is happening there? Are you able to achieve anything in those, I think it's just about 90-minute time frames? Um, our shelters are overwhelmed. We do not have humanitarian supplies to give to people. Absolute mayhem. So everything that was able to be bought in during that longer ceasefire, that's already been used up? The needs are overwhelming and the needs are ongoing and people move from one place to another. So it's very difficult for us to keep track. And I do know because I visited Gaza just 10 days ago, uh, including to one of our shelters, that our shelters are just overflowing with people. People are forced to sleep on the concrete. They're coming to these shelters seeking the United Nations protection. But even those shelters, they've also been hit and they have not been spared. That was uh, Juliet Tuma, a spokesperson from the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. The widow of a Christchurch terror attack victim has described the agonising almost 24-hour wait she went through to know if her husband was alive. Saira Patel was forced to leave the site of her bleeding husband Musa, who had been shot while they were praying at the Linwood Mosque. She says that day she repeatedly asked for information about him but was refused entry into the into Christchurch hospital. Nevichitik was in court to hear her speak to the inquest into the deaths of the 51 people who died in the attacks. And a warning, this story does contain distressing information. Fijian woman Saira Patel was standing for prayers at Linwood Islamic Centre on the afternoon of March 15, 2019, when she heard a loud bang. I thought that attire had blown. In Fiji this happens a lot, but then I had a young infant boy crying. I wondered why he was crying. I had two more loud bangs and I could smell fireworks or gun, or gun powder. I yelled out, someone is shooting, someone is shooting. 
Her husband, Musa Patel, could see her from across the room and told her to get down. I could hear so much gunfire all around me, men shouting and yelling. I looked at my husband who was still leaning against the wall. I thought this was our last day and I thought if we, if we were going to die, we would die together today. My husband held both of his hands towards, towards his face, which was a sign he was praying his last prayer, and he looked at me shaking his head. It was as if he too knew he were about to die. Musa was shot in the attack and Syra ran to his side. I was shouting for someone to help to help him. I, I kept yelling, uh, please call the ambulance, please call the ambulance, please someone help. Police took a lot of time to come into the mosque. Police from the armed defenders squad began giving first aid to Musa along with staff from a nearby medical site. But his wife, Syra Patel, had been asked to leave the mosque by police. She was taken to an out-of-control Christchurch Hospital emergency department, crammed with blood-splattered people. I did not know if he was dead or alive. There were people with laptops who I had to speak to in order to identify my husband. We had to enter the names and information of my husband. I asked if I could go into the hospital to see if my husband was in ICU. They would not let me in. At three in the morning, she finally left, still in the dark about what had happened to her husband. At a friend's house, she found out through the news that someone Musa's age was in ICU. The next day, on a mission to get information, Sarah Patel got herself in front of the then Prime Minister, Dame Jacinda Ardern. I told her that I had heard that there was a man in ICU that had not been identified and I thought that the man might be my husband. I was very distressed. The Prime Minister led me into another room to speak to a councillor. The councillor showed her a picture of the man, but it wasn't Musa. Saira Patel told the court she knew then that her husband was dead. She says the delays getting ambulances to the mosque and the chaotic hospital emergency department still haunt her. No one could help me. I still can't believe I had to take the problem to the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who I greatly respect, but I pushed myself up the front of the crowd and waited for her so I could ask her what had happened to my husband, who had been shot at Linwood Mosque. This is what still causes me distress to this day. Saira Patel says while she's thankful for those who gave medical aid to her husband, being with him as he drew his last breath would have made a big difference. The inquest continues this morning. Neva with that report. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.